Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 13 through 37. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. So quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed him by, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok also came with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry on, carry the ark of God, bring back to the, into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to, go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords, of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, Please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the Archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be with your servant, O king, as I have been with your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them, Ahamaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. 
and by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we just come before you today. Um, I just pray that we would just be humble, um, that our hearts would be open um, to your word, um, that it would change us, Lord, um, that we would seek after you. Uh, I pray that you would just be with Mark, um, that the Holy Spirit would just speak through him. It would be your words and not Mark's. Um, And just be with us and give us open minds. Um, And I just thank you again for this time, this body, that we can be together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it is good to be back with you all. Um, I got back from my spiritual renewal. I went down to Village Creek Bible Camp for a week by myself. Um, I say in isolation, but really I had nobody there. Um, And uh, I guess I slept a lot. The first night I think I slept like 11 hours, which was shocking to me. But when you don't have an alarm and you have nothing to be up for. So it was good to relax, to get away, spend a lot of time in reading um, and in prayer. Um, and so I thank you for sending me there. The church gives me, you guys give me one week a year to really renew and get away um, and uh, to pray, to read, uh, work on my sermons for the next year. Well, I work on the sermon schedule. People hear that and they think like, you know what you're going to, well, I know what I'm preaching on. I just don't know what exactly it is. But I take that time to really pray through that and to think through that. Um, and uh, so just a heads up, as of right now, we'll be in 2 Samuel until June-ish. Um, and then we are going to, now this could change, but we're planning on going through the book of Jude through the summer, the rest of the summer, and then starting in the fall, we're going to hit 1 Corinthians. So pray for me. But uh, anyway, so thank you for sending me away. It was really good, um, and, uh, but it is, is so good to be back worshiping um, with, with you guys, my church family. This is, this is who I want to worship with. Um, as wonderful as camp is, it's, it's not this, and so I really appreciate that. As always, Palm Sunday. Really? This passage? What does this have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Um, but what we want to do first is let's wrestle with this passage, kind of what's in it, and then we're going to look and see um, what lessons can we get or what, are, what lessons are spoken of here in these passages that point us to not only the triumphal entry but Christ's Passion Week all the way until the moment of his death on, on Friday. Because that's really what Palm Sunday is about. It's the triumphal entry and the joy of Christ's coming. But as the week progresses, um, it gets worse and worse for Christ. And, uh, and so, anyway, let's, let's look and see what God teaches us in here and how that applies or at least points us to Christ's Passion Week. Well, in this passage, David, he's, he's in a heap of trouble. Eleven years after the rape of Tamar, his daughter, And four years after Absalom's return to Jerusalem, things are starting to come to a head. David hears of Absalom's, he's anointed himself king in Hebron, 
And David begins to realize his danger, finally. He sees it. There are a lot, many in Israel that have actually gone to Absalom's side. And now they're marching on Jerusalem, ready to dethrone and kill David and destroy the city if necessary in order to make Absalom king. And so David, to protect the city, to protect himself, he leads a caravan of mourning and weeping people, those who are still loyal to him. And what started with David's sin against Bathsheba has slowly manifested itself into another civil war. And now the, the anointed king of the Lord is running for his life, just as he did so many years ago when Saul was trying to take his life. But despite the depressing circumstances, not all is lost because God has not forsaken David. He has not forsaken the people of Israel. So as bad as it looks, it's not like God has left the room and left things to their own devices. This must have been a really hard time for David. His daughter was violated, his eldest son was murdered, and now his other son, Absalom, is seeking his life and desires the throne. David is the anointed king of Israel, but right now it seems like he's the king of nothing but the wilderness. A rule of blessing has now seemed to be reduced to hardship and tears again for David. But he's not alone. Have you ever had those circumstances in your life where you feel utterly alone? No one understands. Everyone's against you. No one is with you. This is where David is. This is how he's, he's feeling right now. But the reality is, is that he's not alone. There are still military leaders that are loyal to him. 600 Gittites are willing to endure David's hardships, though, though they would find it a lot easier if they stayed in Jerusalem with the new king, did you catch that David said, stay with the king? He's already acknowledging that Absalom, for all intents and purposes, is now the king of Israel. And David encourages them to stay for their own sake. Why should you come with me and have the new king against you? But their commander, Ittai, that's an awesome name. I love these names. Thanks for doing such a good job. Um, Luke saying those names. Ittai refuses to leave David and he swears by the life of the Lord that they will stay with David whatever the future may hold, good or bad. Now that, that is loyalty. But along with loyal military leaders, more importantly is the loyalty of the priests and the Levites. Abiathar, or Abiathar, and Zadok, Zodak, the two high priests, they arrive with the Levites bearing the Ark of the Covenant. Now remember that the Ark of the Covenant was the physical representation of the presence of God. And to have the Ark with David, with him, would have been a major encouragement to David and a statement to Absalom that the Lord is on David's side, not on the side of Absalom. So you would think 
David would be really excited to have the ark with him. But instead of bringing these loyal priests and Levites to him, David commands them to carry the ark back into the city. David understands that the Lord's presence and power is not limited to a box, because that's basically what the ark is. It's holy, it's sacred, but it's still a box with angels on top. And he refuses to use the ark as some sort of magical item. And if we remember, Israel had done that in the past. Do you remember? They brought it into battle at the time of, of Eli, thinking, well, we've got the ark with us now. We're going to beat the Philistines. But it didn't work out that way. It backfired. The army was defeated, and the ark was actually captured by the Philistines. David knows that He's in the hands of the Lord, whether he has the ark or not. And he places himself completely on the mercy of God. This is why he says to the priests and the Levites, If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it, that is the ark, and his dwelling place, the tabernacle at that time. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. I mean, that's, that's quite a statement, and it reveals David's faith in God, because who can stand against God? In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, and this is just one of many passages that speak of God's power. This is what it says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, that's not talking about the world is unworthy, like they have no worth and no value. What Daniel is trying to say is, compared to God, the power of man and the power of creation and the power of this world is nothing. Who can go to God and say, you know, I think I have a better idea, God. I think this is the right thing to do. What have you done, God? As if we're the parent and he's the child. You see, David understands that the Lord is the one who ultimately is in control. The Lord moves his hand where he pleases. He does his will among the heavens and the earth, and no one can question him. Job found this out when he was complaining to God. And God's response was, where were you when the world was created? What was it like to tell the oceans to only go this far? He spends two chapters saying this, a chapter or two saying this to Job. And Job's response is, I am unworthy to even question you, God. You're right. You are God. I am not. And he humbled himself before the Lord. God does his will among the heavens and the earth, and no one can question him. Why? Because he is the ruler of all kingdoms and all nations. He makes empires and nations and kings, including David, to rise and fall so that none is able to withstand him. Sometimes I think we, we get in our minds like, I'm the best thing that's ever happened to God. 
that if I am not here, God's will is not going to be done. This is, I'll make it personal, this is a real struggle for a lot of pastors. If I'm not the pastor of Elm Creek, then Elm Creek's going to fail. It's so easy for that to enter our, our head and our minds and our hearts. But the reality is, the Lord brought me here and the Lord can take me away. And he would have every right to do so. We are not the best thing that ever happened to God. God is the best thing that ever happened to us as his people. And so it is with David. God makes kingdoms and nations and kings rise and fall. Does David want to cease being the anointed king of the Lord? Well, absolutely not. He doesn't want that. He doesn't desire to be removed from what he has been called by God to do. But he also understands that the one whom the Lord anoints can also be removed if it is his will. All he has to do, all David has to do is look at his predecessor, Saul. He was anointed and he was removed. And should the Lord desire for David's rule to end in this moment, for Absalom to become king, then it would be good to the Lord. You know that famous passage? He does good. Okay, so I'm thinking off the top of my head here. So bear witness with me. He works all things for good for those who love him. And we interpret that as my good, like what I want. It doesn't say that. It says he does it for good. And it's ultimately for our good because if it's his good, it's our good, right? As his children. For David to be removed as king, David says it would be good. If that's what the Lord desires, he's going to do it. And the Lord always does good. Who is David to stand in the way of the God of all creation? David places his life in the Lord, hands of the Lord. And as my Bible note reads, okay, he places himself in the hands of the Lord, but... He's not taking it laying down. He's not saying, Kesara, what will be, will be. Okay, whatever. I'm just going to hang out here and let God move. He's not taking it laying down, and, but he isn't also resisting the will of the Lord, whatever that will may be. And we see both his trust in the Lord and his desire to live as king when he receives word of the betrayal of his most trusted advisor, Ahithophel. When David hears of his betrayal, he gives a simple prayer. O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And as he comes to the summit of the Mount of Olives, and what's really important is what comes after this, the place where God was worshipped, because that explains what happens next. He goes to the summit of the Mount of Olives, where God is worshipped, and suddenly Hushai the Archite shows up. Now, this is the first time we ever hear of this guy. But he's going to play a major role in the events which lead to David's return to the throne. And it's interesting that shortly after David's prayer for the Lord, he gets to the place where the Lord is worshipped. 
the loyal and mourning Hushai arrives. Hmm. What a coincidence. No, there are no coincidences when it comes to God. It wasn't an accident that Hushai arrives exactly at that moment. And David recognizes the opportunity which God has presented. So he's putting himself in the hands of God, but when the opportunity arises to take the counsel of Ahithophel and turning it into foolishness, David jumps at it. Hushai wants to stay. And David says, no, you're going to be a burden to me, which is hilarious. It's one guy, and he just told 600 guys to join him. Do you, do you see this? He says, no, 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 you're going to be too much of a burden for me. I don't know if he's trying to make him feel better or what, but he says, go back to Jerusalem. I want you to be my spy. I want you to play the part of a loyal subject to Absalom in order to gain information, get it to the priests, who will then get it to me, and thus you will defeat the council of Ahithophel. You, you see what happens there. It feels like everything's falling apart around David. He hears of his most trusted advisor now has betrayed him. And he says, God, turn his counsel into foolishness. Oh, look, there's Hushai. <laughs> God has not left David. And so Hushai... David's friend, is how he's described, came into the city in the nick of time just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So we see in these verses that no matter what circumstances David and the people of Israel find themselves, and we have seen this throughout First and Second Samuel, the Lord never forsakes them. He never abandons them. They face the consequences for sin, but that does not mean that he's left them. But what does this have to do with Christ and with us today, especially on Palm Sunday? Well, the truths found in the events of Christ's life from his triumphal entry to his death, they are seen in these verses, though not all of them are, are positive. Okay, so what, what I mean by this is that David is, bo is both a type of Christ, that means pointing us to Christ in a positive way, and an anti-type of Christ. I use the word anti-Christ. I think that's too confusing. It's the anti-type of Christ, pointing us to Christ in a negative way. And another way to see this is that David's faithfulness as king points us to Christ's faithfulness as the true anointed king. That's the positive way. But also, that where David failed in faithfulness, Christ succeeded in his faithfulness. So that's the negative way. All right, so when it comes to our passage this morning, I, I have to make a disclaimer. We can easily take a passage and then start going, oh yeah, oh look, one-to-one -one correlation. Oh, look at that. Oh, it means this, and oh, it just matches up perfectly. It, that's not what I'm doing. That's not what I'm doing this morning. And that's really dangerous to do unless it's really, really obvious or the New Testament authors say, hey, look at the one-to-one -one correlation. What what? is happening. What we're doing this morning is when it comes to this passage, there isn't the one-to-one -one correlation between it, between, between it and Christ's triumphal entry and Passion Week, but the lessons that are shown in this passage are actually seen in that week of Christ's life. So that's, that's what we're going to try to do. This is not analogy or metaphor, okay? This is, this is type 
Christ. David is a type of Christ or an anti-type of Christ. How does this teach us about who Christ is? Well, where David flees for his life from Jerusalem with tears and mourning, Christ enters triumphantly to worship and great celebration. This is the anti-type. He enters into Jerusalem with worship and great celebration. Uh, We read this earlier during worship, Mark chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut off from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. David had entered Jerusalem with great fanfare years earlier. Now he's fleeing for his life. His kingdom seemed to be crumbling and his rule seemed to be headed towards its end. Jesus, though, he enters Jerusalem with triumph. He's proclaimed the king who would save Israel. That's what Hosanna means. Save us, O Lord. Hosanna. Restore the greatness of the kingdom of David. Bring back what we once were. But only a week later, another crowd with likely the same, some of the same people who shouted Hosanna began shouting, crucify him. Jesus was not the king that the people expected. And so they rejected him. Just as many rejected David. On Friday, only days after the triumphal entry, Jesus makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And he prays, just as David did on the summit. Christ knows what's about to happen to him. He knows the pain and suffering and sorrow. He knows the utter torment that he is about to face on the cross. And the Gospel of Mark says that he was greatly distressed and troubled, that his soul was very sorrowful even to death. And yet he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. Where have we heard something similar like that? Like David, Jesus puts his life in the hands of God. Let him do to me what seems good to him. And what the Father saw as good was for Christ to be betrayed and abandoned. Like Ahithophel's betrayal of David was Judas' betrayal of Christ. Judas had been with Jesus for over three years, hearing him teach, helping him serve others. He witnessed the deaf being made to hear, the blind to see, the dead to rise from the grave. And yet this quote-unquote friend, this loyal advisor, if you want to use the words from 2 Samuel, betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Where David had many who were loyal to him in the end, even willing to flee with him into the wilderness, all of Christ's disciples abandoned him. No no one is standing up for him. 
No priest or Levite is supporting him. He has no army following him. And in the end, even God the Father forsakes him. On the cross, just before he breathes his last, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Literally, that means, why have you abandoned me? In his greatest time of need, or in his time of greatest need, is probably a better way to say that, his father abandons him. God does what he never did to David. He does what he never did to Israel. He does it to his own son. Why? Because on the cross, all of the sins of God's people, past, present, and future, were placed upon Christ. Our sin, our sin is deplorable to a holy and righteous and perfect God. And with every one of our sins placed upon his son, Jesus took the full punishment which we deserved, being forsaken and abandoned by the Father for our sinful rebellion against him. Jesus, he took this path willingly. But to be completely abandoned by God, to be completely removed from the loving grace and mercy of his Father, to experience the complete and all-consuming wrath of God for our sins, let's let this sink in, is something that only those who spend eternity in hell will experience. That's what Christ did on the cross. Where the Lord didn't abandon David... He had to abandon Christ. He had to. But praise God, he didn't do it forever. Three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead. Spoiler alert, sorry. He's raised from the dead. He's restored back into, the, the, into God's grace and mercy. He takes the throne of the kingdom of God, which was rightly his. And because he took the, the punishment of the full wrath of God for us, we who repent of our sins and believe in Christ's work upon the cross are fully restored to a right relationship with God. We receive life in the presence of God for all eternity. God saw it as good to abandon his son so that his people might be saved forever. Think of, it, think of it this way. Because Christ was forsaken, I'm forgiven. His condemnation of suffering and death, his abandonment by the Father for those three days brings us acceptance into the fold of God's people for all time, never to be removed. Never. And because Christ was raised from the dead, the way of eternal life is revealed to us. God never abandoned David as his anointed king. He never abandoned Israel as his people. But his abandonment and then full restoration of Christ means that God will never, ever, ever, ever for all eternity forsake and abandon his people today 
those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. Through Christ, hear this, through Christ, God saves and never leaves his people. There's never a question of it. There's never a wonder. If, I, if I've done this, I've, I've committed this sin as God's son or God's daughter, does, does that mean he's not going to love me anymore? We don't have a father like that. He said, no, that, that sin, did you know that that's already actually paid for? By my son on the cross. And I don't remember it anymore. You are my child. You, you, are, you are mine forever. And my love for you can never be removed. Neither height, nor depth, nor good, nor bad. None of it can remove you from my love. If you believe and trust in what my son did upon the cross. When we celebrate communion, that's what we're celebrating. We hear these words from 2 Samuel of, of all looks lost for David. All looks hopeless. What's going to happen? And he prays a really quick prayer to God, and God says, oh yeah, by the way, I haven't left you. Look, here's, here's Hushai. And as we will continue to see that even though, yes, there's much more to, to happen in 2 Samuel in this situation as David is fleeing, it points us to the fact that, that Christ took the abandonment of the Lord so that we might be saved and we glorify Him. We praise Him for it. We remember, that's why He says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I have done for you as my child. And don't sit there and, and weep for me. Praise God for what he has done through me. You are my child, never to be taken from my hands. Remember what I have done and glorify my Father in heaven and give him praise. So he enters with triumph. He goes five days later, suddenly he's on the cross. Well, suddenly he's on the cross. He's abandoned completely. He dies. But the grave doesn't stay closed. The grave is empty. The tomb is empty. And so we praise him as we give commun or take communion this morning. So if you are a child of God, you are welcome to join us. You don't have to be a member of Elm Creek. Come and join us. Take the cup, take the bread, come back to your seat, and then together as a family of God, we will take the bread and take the cup. We will remember together and we will glorify and worship Him together. So whenever you are ready, go ahead and start your line, grab the elements, and then come back to your seats.